core purpose of exchanges must be to create jobs. If it's not creating jobs, if it's really just trading derivatives, then where is the value creation? If it's not encouraging the new generation of investors, allowing them to put money behind companies that they relate to, that they are supporting because these companies are solving problems that will impact us in the next 10 years, 20 years. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong and we are in the midst of an economic downturn. This brings about major changes in the financing of private companies given that capital has been cheap over the last decade. How will the market for companies raising private rounds look like with rising interest rates, inflation and supply chain woes caused by war and pandemic? With me today, Calvin Lee, co-founder and CEO of Funnel. This is a conversation which I have looked forward to and we don't have the luxury of the perfect timing in such times Calvin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you. I know we have been uh, trying to schedule a good time for this. What better time than now when there's so many macro events happening that's going to affect the private capital markets. So thank you for having me. And also given that we have so many beers and so many drinks and talking about the private markets, I thought it's a real good time to get you on the show. Of course, being a first-time guest on my show, the first thing is your origin story. How did you start your career? Don't forget our biosphere idea as well, Bernard. Yeah, that's definitely. It's uh, related to my own experience, essentially, when, when I graduated from school. So I graduated actually from a local university in US. But unfortunately, unfortunately, a month before uh, Lehman collapsed, so I was fortunate in a sense. I actually managed to get a job in finance. So I started within the global markets team at Standard Charter doing corporate finance. But my peers back in school, they were all actually, I guess, uh, depending on how you look at it, different trajectories for career. So they couldn't get jobs. But because they couldn't get jobs due to the financial crisis back in 08, they were forced to start building businesses. So I think back in school, a couple of us actually tried various entrepreneurship ideas, uh, including my own experience of trying to think about how better to visualize our world less able to so handicap people who are not able to travel and experience the way we travel at the world. So I actually started filming the streets of Orchard Road and getting a software developer to, to, to visualize Orchard Road so that people can actually walk using an avatar and experience shopping on the streets of Orchard Road as an example, right? So all the way from since then, right, I really had like a, an idea that I needed to use my time, my experience to actually make a difference to, to the world. But obviously, because of the financial crisis, I was forced into a career in finance. So I started out, as I mentioned, in Standard Chartered, subsequently joining JP Morgan as an investment banker. And really, from then on, the career trajectory was set, riding the wave of many, many capital market activities from IPO, initial public offerings for Manchester United's dual listing, all the way to even working on local listings on the Singapore Exchange to exploring different listings in uh, in the US and even North Asia, right? So it's really a wave of listings that I was a part of. I was just along for the ride, just really learning about all the different capital markets, all the different companies that I was serving. And then what hit uh, really was one of the uh, last uh, deals I did for a company in China, whereby the founder basically was a tech entrepreneur and he was really frustrated with the banks. And he said that if I could actually raise capital without going through the typical banking roadshow, flying halfway around the world for one or two uh, meetings, and I can raise it on a platform, I will do so in a heartbeat, right? So I remember like China actually skipped 
a phase, if you would. So they you know, went straight to mobile. So the banks were a, not something that entrepreneurs were very used to. They actually could see a world almost immediately without investment banks uh, being a part of it. So I think that's how this whole thing started. I did a lot more research on what is preventing a private company from going directly to the investors or the capital market with, without the banks, or really what is the role of underwriters or what is the role of banks. And I realized that there needs to be a quicker way, a more sustainable approach, a more cost and time efficient method for them, these uh, new generation of entrepreneurs, starting companies, to access the capital markets without spending significant amount of time and money with the bankers. Right? And I think that's how this whole thing started. And I think that it was interesting just how you pointed about trying to have a virtual mapping and allow disabled to come in. So in today's world, we would call that the metaverse, right? <laughs> Actually, the funny thing was it was called Second Life back then. and Yes, um, I know. Yeah, so this is something that I think if you watch uh, some of these uh, new Netflix documentaries or hard fiction uh, kind of shows, there was this, this, this show called Billion Dollar Code or something, but how a bunch of programmers from Berlin uh, actually started the same mapping engine that uh, eventually became what we know as Google Earth. So before we get into the story of Funnel, I would also want to get your point of view, what would be the interesting career lessons you would like to share with my audience? Sure. So I think the way we thought about careers back in uh, the banks were really about incremental, what I would say, experiences. So it's deal after deal, checkbox after checkbox. So from from a junior analyst, you, you learn as much as you can, you work on as many transactions as you can. And what I started to realize was when we were young, the only thing we have is really our energy, our time, and our enthusiasm as such. And so my biggest advice or takeaway from that is that, especially when you're first starting out, don't take your time for just a little bit more money. Uh, and really think about opportunity costs. Think about why you're doing this. I think there's a book by Simon Sinek uh, called Start With Why. So I think going through the five whys, really asking yourself why you're doing this would have been something that I would have actually done earlier. And that, that it doesn't mean that you actually have to go build your business immediately you know, from school, uh, even if you have no unique insight or there's no like real pinpoint for you to solve. But I think having the process where you start asking yourself why you're doing this, why it's interesting to you, and then finding out what drives you is at least number one lesson for entrepreneurship. And I guess anyone starting out in their careers, uh, don't go for incremental uh, differences in money. Don't go for checkboxes. Don't go for trying to earn trophies, essentially, because... After 10 years, you finally realized that you collected all the trophies, but ended up with uh, not much uh, life experience. The biggest takeaway that me and my founders got was really this journey taught us a lot about ourselves. Learning what drives us, learning how we can create is something that is irreplaceable. And it comes to the main subject of the day, which I want to talk about funnel and the private markets, whether it's from global to Southeast Asia. Before we start our conversation on the story of Fano, it will be great to baseline our conversation to the understanding of private and public markets. To start, can you define the private and public markets and explain why there exists what we call a great divergence between these two markets, given there is friction for any investor out there to press a button and buy a stock, say Tesla, or even by taking a private company, say Bioformis or Shopback in Southeast Asia? Yeah, sure. So I think private markets are where people can purchase shares in private companies. Basically shares that are not currently listed on an official stock exchange, such as, uh, such as the SGX, Singapore Exchange. And it's usually dominated by venture capitalists or uh, private equity investors, angel investors, uh, etc. 
And the funny thing is that maybe just to sidetrack a little about who exactly are we serving in this uh, company. We started the platform essentially to serve not just the institutional investors that I mentioned earlier, the VCs, the PEs, the sovereign wealth funds that are actually uh, active investors in private companies. We left to actually build a platform for regular guys like ourselves. Like we worked in the banks, you know, uh, we understood the risks, probably qualified as an accredited investor, um, but we could not actually align our own personal portfolios with, uh, I guess, what I would call personally the best performing asset class for many decades, which is private equity or venture capital. It's more historically reserved for uh, the super wealthy and institutional investors. So I think the private markets is really their realm. Regular guys like ourselves, we, we hear about it, but we have very little access or insight into it. Imagine you heard about a bunch of kids in, in, in the startup co-working space who are running classified services for pre-owned goods, where they make pre-owned goods look cool, sexy, more sustainable now. And say you wanted to invest in these uh, you know, young people, uh, how would you do it? You needed access to them, you need to get their trust, or you have friends that are famous in the like these uh, people. Otherwise, there was there's really no way, uh, very little way that you and I can actually invest in them. But even if you did get a deal to invest in these companies, at a ticket size, which is a minimum investment check size that is friendly enough to allow more people to participate in for the own personal portfolio. I can I can think of the days where we can think in global wise, say in the US, you think about it like angel list syndicates. But when I come back to what you are working on, what is the inspiration behind funnel and what are the key problems which your platform seek to address? We started out thinking about how we can actually democratize uh, private markets, really thinking about access, I mentioned, right? So access for more people, but really thinking about, okay, so after investing in these private companies, what is the next big pain point that's going to be your impediment, right? To invest more in private, private companies. And I realized that that's actually liquidity. So a couple of years later, after you invested in the uh, company I mentioned earlier, uh, you're going to ask, can I exit uh, this investment? Can I actually get some money back? Can I take some money off the table? Which is essentially, if you think about capital markets, it is a risk transfer mechanism. And without liquidity, there'll be less and less people that are willing to take the risk. And therefore, the circular cycle of risk transfer is actually broken. Right? So liquidity is something that we have to solve alongside the problem of excess. But I think we'd like to take a look at funnel that we have done good work in solving for excess. So being able to invest in the best uh, in the top private companies globally. And liquidity is the next problem that we're looking to solve. And we are actually really obsessed, absolutely obsessed with solving it. So much so that we even started, invested together with traditional brokerages in a private securities exchange that is licensed by the MES. And with the private exchange, essentially, we want to solve these two issues and make the private markets and alternative assets accessible to more people. And just to help my audience, MES means the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and they're pretty well known for their regulation all over the world from the project Pula Wubin, which is the local cryptocurrency project that is now being used as a case study for the MIT site. So I wanted to sort of go back to your early days. What are your early days like when you first start the business seven years ago? And also in today's world, what do you think your vision and mission for Funnel is now? We knew that this problem that we were trying to solve wasn't going to be an easy one. We were tackling established FIs and big boys with unlimited, at least a lot more capital than we needed. So we needed to be in this for the long haul. And advisors will need to stay as lean as possible and be smart 
as possible until the last the, the last race, right? So it wasn't a sprint, it was uh, really about surviving. And at that point in time, people were not, unlike now, convinced that there was a market for private investment or private capital markets wasn't a thing. And only now we start seeing uh, traditional investment banks starting private capital markets. And for us, we always knew there was a market for private investments. These were the same bunch of people that we were trying to serve, uh, as I mentioned, uh, when I was uh, doing time in uh, investment banking, in the boss record investment banks. And, but they were just consuming our product, the capital markets product, very differently. Uh, they were a generation of entrepreneurs that grew up differently. Uh, they are now interacting with the capital markets differently. They are staying private longer. And if you think about the private market, this isn't actually a, a market, right? So we imagine it to be a very efficient marketplace like the public exchanges that we are used to. But actually, they're more like mazes. And people have to navigate themselves within the, the maze. And really, as long as they find the asset class they're in, depending on who they were, who they knew, they would be animals. Only for institutional investors, a high network individual to the right access, right? So that was our biggest challenge when we first started. Like, look, this is something, it's a tough problem. I need big minds, I need uh, you know, guys with unlimited drive. But we must know that this is a problem that will help and not just uh, enrich the rich people who really have access uh, to this, but really by creating a vibrant market for private companies which employ majority of the people in any country, by creating an avenue for people, more people to actually invest in these private capital markets uh, to align, as I mentioned earlier, their personal portfolios into this asset class actually becomes a very self-sustaining uh, capital markets ecosystem that actually leads subsequently to jobs creation and a lot more economic growth that is more sustainable. And I think if you go back to the purpose of capital markets and entrepreneurship, it's very uh, closely linked, whereby without a vibrant capital markets, you actually won't see a lot more people, a lot more people from school, as I mentioned, taking risks, creating companies, trashing out ideas, because if the capital markets don't support the liquidity event, they exist then there'll be less and less appealing for people to actually take risks and start companies. Yeah, so I think that's something that biggest challenge when you first started, we had to, we had to overcome. Mm. Then after that, now today, what do you view your vision and mission for Funnel looks like then? Yeah, so I think the way we thought about vision and mission really is, we call it as enabler. So using the technology pieces that we've built localizing it for various markets. So besides Singapore, we're also operating and licensed in Malaysia, Indonesia, expanding to new markets. So the technology pieces that we build, we will provide uh, cost and some efficient access to growth capital uh, private companies around us. So new generation entrepreneurs starting these companies won't be stuck with just an option of either an, an initial public offering, IPO, or a trade sales slash m and There are only two exit options. The way we think about success and, uh, and in the future is really breaking the monopoly of the rich by providing access to private equity as an asset class for the average person, facilitating investments in local businesses. So not just thinking about tech companies, but thinking about even the essential businesses, the SMEs, that we love so much that during the pandemic actually became essential businesses serving serving us and these companies you know these entrepreneurs don't start these companies to to become tech unicorns they start these businesses actually because they want to serve the community right can we actually create a vibrant capital markets for them with our technology pieces, right? So we think about how when plugged into emerging countries around the world, so maybe don't think about Singapore, think about maybe other capital markets, maybe even in Greece is an example, and then the gelato shops or the chain of FMB outlets that are serving the local communities. Can we create a hyper-local funding ecosystem or capital markets, right, that will 
uh, empower gainful employment and therefore create uh, jobs in, in, in these countries, right? Or if you think about tech businesses, can we help roll the dice by backing founders solving hard problems to enable them to actually have capital that will help us in our lifetime and our children's lifetime create value for longer-term growth? So that's how I think about success. It's really about longevity of the capital markets, infrastructure, and the pieces that we've built in serving the new generation of entrepreneurs and a new generation of investors. You alluded earlier the customers of Funnel is actually the institutions, individuals who may be interested in investing into private companies and hence open up the access to everyone else. Does the customers need to be accredited before investing into private companies anywhere? So the core customer, I would say that we, we left traditional FIs or investment banks to serve really are not just the high net worth and institutional investors, but really everyone, the mass affluent, including retail. Obviously, different countries have different uh, regulations concerning uh, who can actually invest in the asset class. So as an example, in Malaysia, we do actually have a license for retail investors to actually participate in private equity or private investments, subject to a cap on the limit that each retail investors are able to invest per year unless they actually upgrade their status to become an accredited investor. So I think there are shades of grey for different countries that we operate in. We are also regulated in Singapore and it is currently the strictest jurisdiction that we hold a license to. And therefore, if any investor from various parts of the world want to invest in our international deals that is licensed by the Singapore entity, that investor would have to upgrade their status to comply with Singapore standards. And for now, that status is an accredited investor as the minimum before they can actually start investing in deals. Interesting you mentioned that because I was doing my accreditation in Funnel today and it was exactly the same accreditation that was required for me to even invest in US companies, say through AngelList syndicates as well. So it's kind of more common standards across the world, even with what is happening in the US as well. So one interesting thing is in your journey, like can you talk about the investors who have backed Funnel so far and how did they help you in building the company in the process? Sure. So I think a couple of our key investors would also mirror the unique position that we find ourselves in. So we have people on our cap table ranging from traditional top tier brokerage houses like Philip Securities, which for people who are trading public securities in the region, I think they're one of the largest brokerages in Southeast Asia, uh, probably number one uh, market making market makers and, and, and trading volume on the Singapore exchange. We have traditional investment banks like Nomura Investment Bank on our cap table. We have a top tier corporate finance house who is probably the largest underwriter and sponsor for IPOs on the Catalyst board in Singapore, Prime Partners as well. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have obviously VC funds like uh, Diamond Asia or, or now known as Integra uh, Partners and uh, Majuven as well, our VC funds on our cap table. And a little uh, maybe known or unknown secret is that we actually um, also, we've also been invested by Binance uh, Asia. So I think this is how we shape our tech table to reflect the unique position that I think our licensed platform and exchange is in. Lending old world uh, financial institutions from brokerage houses to investment banks to corporate finance houses with a newer world VCs and then subsequently even crypto exchange powerhouse. And then you also have family officers and all that, also that who was part of that process as well, right? 
Yeah. One one interesting thing, and I I know you are very humble and seldom talk about it, but I'm gonna get you to. Can you share some highlights of Funnel over the past few years, and also the recent launch of your new fund with BRI Ventures to jumpstart Indonesia startup investment? Yeah, no, sure. I think it's been a really interesting period for us during COVID. Obviously, a lot of businesses were were suffering, and we were really really unsure going into the lockdown as well ourselves in 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 Funnel. But because I think we were online first, and as I mentioned earlier, we were very lean when we started. We never had the luxury of excess resources, pounding a pavement to, to do deal sourcing or, or investments. We were really lucky that due to the lack of travel allowed between fragmented Southeast Asia, we found ourselves being approached by many, many global issuers, companies, and funds. And they started approaching us with partnerships to actually distribute their securities, their funds into our, our region. And as, as a result of that, the in terms of deals closure, we've actually completed over 600 million US transactions and over a thousand investment tickets completed on the platform as of December last year. And uh, this is something that brings us slightly closer, maybe about 60% to our BHAG number of actually completing a billion transactions by 2025. So I think I'm quite uh, excited that we are close to hitting the billion dollar number. But also more excited as exactly what you said about the new fund that we launched with BRI Ventures. Remember I mentioned that we are obsessed about solving for liquidity. I think BRI Ventures secondary fund is a step in, in, in that direction, whereby helping founders, employees, early investors exit, creating liquidity for these investors or even employees. Firstly, we hope that we are able to allow them with the proceeds received to reinvest in the private markets ecosystem, exactly what you mentioned, Angelis. It's only mostly the people who have been a participant of the private markets see the value that private markets can create with their own investment. And by bringing on partners like BRI, who is one of the largest, I guess, CBCs in Indonesia, and definitely one of, one of the more established VC funds there. We are able to get a very, very strong pipeline of Indonesian growth companies. Again, one of the hottest parts of the world that a lot of funds and emerging managers would like to get access to uh, must come with uh, localized partners. So I think that's how we think about our partnership with BRI. And this is really kind of emphasizes enough importance of partnering with people who are aligned uh, with us on, on solving this uh, issue. It's something that I am most uh, excited about for the next uh, couple of years. So how does Funnel source the deals for the investors to buy in? I mean, you have done some really interesting ones like secondary shares for, say, Grab, even SpaceX. I remember when we first met, that was one of the most interesting companies on, on your platform. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think the way we thought about deals, because again, we didn't have the luxury of having a lot of headcount looking for deal origination, was that we relied a lot on technology. So... We have three main methods for getting deals, inbound, outbound, and rebound. So inbound is really where, obviously, through our own networks, investors who have traded with us or in before over the many years with our track record, the inbound these days are pretty strong. On top of, as I mentioned earlier, because of the lockdown, a lot of the global funds and global issuers were not traveling to the region. So again, coming 
through us, like even our dominant position in the market, really, really accelerated inbound of opportunities. Plus, it helps that we have the exchange together with traditional FIs I mentioned. They bring these FIs, their own clients and deals as well. So the inbound, I guess, method of deal origination is super strong. The next method is really outbound. So again, because of our lean headcount, we actually rely a lot more on data, which is constantly looking at not just the 19,000 investors on our network, what these investors are looking for, what have they invested in, how do they interact on our platform, what kind of deals are they most excited about. But also outside the platform, so investors who are not within our network, the data system actually scrubs the universe of investors looking for trends, looking for top tier companies that we should target. And if we do originate these companies, we are pretty confident there's actually a likelihood of investment, a score assigned to every investor that we actually look at before we decide whether or not to spend time cultivating the relationships. And the third method is really rebound. So it's really where we differ a lot from traditional VCs or PEs, whereby I'm like a human-based investment team, once you reject a company that you have looked at, you probably forget about them. But because our first step in every single deal origination that we do is converting unstructured data into a structured format on our system, the system never forgets this company. And the system will constantly look at news reports or even, as I mentioned earlier, macro trends, investor, investor flavor of the year or month. And if anything positive about the sector or the company happens around the world, the system will actually reflect to us and our team will actually then approach these companies to re-engage them again. So that's a rebound. Wow, that's actually a pretty complex process. One function I thought was very interested in funding in the private markets is that it actually unlocks liquidity for startup founders and employees. How does the platform help them to unlock that liquidity? The way we think about liquidity, there are actually three segments or groups of people that we can actually support. The first group is actually early and the way that is supported is really by helping them exit because of either fund life. So they're coming to an end of the fund life. And as I mentioned, as companies stay private longer, there is a need to actually return money to their LPs. So that was how we first started in 2018, helping all these early investors recycle capital for their funds to return to LPs. The second group of people that we can serve is really the employees that have actually maybe either exercised their options, vested shares. So I think you mentioned earlier, we did a lot of secondaries for, for Grab as an example. Some of them are actually employees who have left the company, they have moved on to the next big thing or even need capital to support their next phase of growth personally. And that's where with the support of the company, what we'll do is find a buyer for, for those shares. And then going through the process of the company, once that is approved, the share transfer is done at the company level. And the first, the last group of people that we can serve is actually the founders. And I think that's where the BRI fund is an example we're focused on. Uh, and founders really, as captain of the ship, oftentimes are viewed as the last person holding on to the, to the, to the boat. But that doesn't necessarily have to be 100% always true. We do think that with liquidity, there will be a renewed energy and fire for some of these guys to actually spend a lot more of their personal energy and time. They're really trading your life away for building something that you, you believe in. I'm not actually advocating for a large exit. I'm actually saying that it will actually benefit the company if the founders actually are able to monetize a bit of their, their shares that they have earned over the many, many years they've built the company. And by focusing on the founders, of helping these people unlock liquidity, we actually think that it becomes a very mutually reinforcing positive cycle for employees as well and allowing them to stay committed in the startups or private companies' mission. I think Carta, as an example, in the US talks a lot about this and it's really one of the core parts 
parts of employee retention program that I think a lot more companies in this part of the world should start looking at. And we are seeing a lot more uh, companies led by the founders themselves uh, look at this, uh, offering this uh, employee or even company liquidity program for the three groups of people I talked about. So while this type of events are actually becoming very common in the US through Carter or second market, what's the frequency like in Southeast Asia or even Asia Pacific as a whole? So I think, you know, second market, uh, mostly, if you think about it, it's going to be a company tender process. So it's a one-time trade. Second market, I think, sorry, Kata, on the other hand, is looking more for employee liquidity and really thinking about it from a trading point of view. So being able to trade in and out of these uh, companies is the method that we are also focusing on. There are a couple of ways to do what we think that we are, we are experimenting with to do this. When we think about frequency, if it's a one-time tender offer in line with what the company's objectives are, it may or may not uh, serve the interest of, I guess, a new bunch of investors who have invested during the tender offer, but subsequently during the time whereby there is no tender offer in the market are unable to actually sell ahead of the next liquidity event or tender offer. So I think that's something that is not as uh, friendly. Uh, that being said, like there are pros and cons to both uh, tender offer versus direct trading of companies directly on the exchanges uh, that we're working on. And I think with the new wave of new group of people, uh, new generation of millennial investors who are you know, smarter and more savvy, a lot of them are actually thinking about adding these alternative investors. You mentioned uh, SpaceX just now, but a lot of them, I think, will want to invest in companies that they relate to, sustainable companies, et cetera, et cetera, but maybe not at a ticket side, millions of, millions of dollars which are not as palatable or, or achievable for most people, but hopefully at a much smaller ticket size uh, that is more comfortable for them. And that allows the market to trade in and out freely. So a lot of them actually starting to look at this, how, be- how best to add this alternative asset in their portfolio. A lot of FIs, a lot of brokerage houses are also starting to create products uh, around this. And a lot of companies have also started thinking about even uh, going as far as tokenizing the ESOP program that has some dicks to it. So if I'm a founder of a private company and I want to initiate a liquidity unlock event, how do I approach Panel? And what are the things I need to think as a founder before coming to you? For example, maybe price discovery of the liquidity event. So there are a couple of ways you can do so. So I think there is company liquidity program that is as good as allowing the company free reign to decide how best to allocate whatever demand that is available on the exchange. So for instance, the exchange, for instance, will, will see $10 million worth of demand for your company shares. The company then decides to allocate that $10 million between the different groups of people I mentioned, so early investors, employees, and founders. And mind you, not all three groups may have different objectives and the allocation decision will serve different needs for different companies at different stages of their lives, essentially. So that's one method. The second method really is individual sales. So being able to, for instance, pledge or custodize a portion of their shares. And by custodizing those shares, we can actually then digitize the shares and by digitizing the shares, we're then able to list it on the exchange. Once it's listed, again, bids will come from various investors across the brokerage network, so our member firms of the exchange or even within our own. And once a bid is received, the seller then decides whether or not to transact based on the bids received. 
So those are the, the three methods. So for private markets, what are the mental models for valuation? Because it feels like an art in startups below Series B and a science after Series B to mezzanine or even pre-IPO stage. Sure. So I think one of the interesting things about the differences between the public and private markets is that unlike the public markets, whereby the valuation of a company is really measured by the last traded price, so what was the last traded price times the number of shares outstanding gives you the valuation of the company in the public in the public world. But in the private markets, whereby if you think about information asymmetry, a lot more gaps or in information disclosure are present or inefficiencies are present in private markets. And therefore, the person with the most information on the private company, which is usually usually the lead investor, sets the valuation of the private company. Anyone else that trades on the private markets, usually in smaller uh, block sizes with less information to, to price around, theoretically, it's not actually moving in valuation of the company. And I think that's how we think about the three reference prices that we have in the private markets. The last round price, which is, as I mentioned, set by the lead investor with the most information from the previous round. The demand and supply price, which is really the market price, depending on the availability of shares in the market and number of amount of buyers in the market looking for the particular shares. So sometimes that trades at a premium to the last round price. A majority of cases that we see, at least in Asia, is at a discount to last round price. We're really factoring in the fact that there is information asymmetry. Uh, the last uh, reference price in the private markets really is the next round price. And the next round price really is about expectations. So most of the time, I would say private markets trade on rumors. When there's expectations that a merger will happen or listing will happen, an exit event will happen, I think a lot more people have a view on where the next round price will be, who could be a potential buyer of this particular company as an example. And that's where the market starts to move from the, the first two prices, last round and demand supply price, to the theoreticized next round price. And then what are the trends for private markets in Southeast Asia look like? Because one thing I'm pretty sure now is our startup founders and employees understanding there are new options opening to them. For example, there are different exit options for, through SPACs or through even direct listing. Yeah, sure. So I think thank God the SPAC trend is behind us. I think it's going to be quite selective going forward on companies that will be eligible to create SPACs and this through, through them. The way we're actually seeing this play out really is in the form of the market looking at the capital markets as a support mechanism for creating and encouraging entrepreneurship. So I think a, a point I mentioned earlier that's the core purpose of capital markets, the core purpose of exchanges must be to create jobs. If it's not creating jobs, if it's really just trading derivatives, then where is the value creation? If it's not encouraging the new generation of investors, allowing them to put money behind companies that they relate to, that they are supporting because these companies are solving problems that will impact us in the next 10 years, 20 years. Everyone is just focused on uh, REITs or yield products, uh, at least in, in, in Asia then there's no one who's going to be rewarding companies that are investing in CapEx. No one's going to be rewarding companies that are investing in the future. Everyone just wants to be paid a dividend. Then I think the options available for startup founders and employees for exits will be very, very different. So thankfully, that is changing. Prior to the pandemic, I think what I described was really the lack of options. But today, with especially with tokenization as a means for a faster transfer of shares, we're actually seeing a different picture emerge. There are actually less and less companies are thinking about IPO as the only way of exit. And I think even in, in the West, so I think some of these companies, you mentioned SpaceX as well, have been staying private longer and have used their own internal point-under offers for liquidity programs to actually incentivize employees to stay longer with the companies. 
So the pressure to go public for the wrong reasons is less intense. And I think if that continues, more and more companies hopefully will stay private. And we hope to be able to support these companies with many options for liquidity. So we live in interesting times with the recent rate hikes to curb rising inflation. The market has triggered an economic downturn. I think if you talk to any entrepreneurs today, in the timing we are, most VCs are deliberately turning off their taps. And I think the startups either rise or go underwater, given that now they have the upper hand on valuation now. What would be your advice to entrepreneurs and capital allocators out there in thinking about these current times? I think that's an interesting point. And I think exactly what you said, people who have been toying and, and burning are starting to be a lot more conservative. So you will see a lot more uh, startups even cutting their costs, tightening their belts. Many, many, many VCs have published uh, papers on this issue. But really thinking about how to survive, as I mentioned, this uh, marathon, which is how we started our company and how this affects the new generation of entrepreneurs when, when they build their business today right? are they going to be thinking about raising capital to burn are they going to be thinking about crazy valuations for their seed round or series a round uh, or are they going to be thinking about okay i'm not i'm not here just to play the same vc game that has played out for the past 10 years i'm actually here to make a difference right and because of that when we when we really distill it to the best companies around are the real ones creating real value making a difference uh, it's not just a copycat a platform that is copying what has worked in the US and trying to localize it for, for the US. We're actually looking at VCs who are emerging managers, really backing founders, solving hard problems, right? And this is, again, not a uh, copycat game. It's not about you know, raising money to mirror, to burn, but it's really about, okay, I'm actually going to put capital to work to shape the communities around me that will then serve uh, the greater interest. So I think we're seeing a lot more of, of that today. And if you think about the flight to real quality assets, there is actually a more interesting correlation where during this time of inf inflation, real assets are actually, real assets which is hard assets. So including even property as an example or, or commodities as an example, real assets are actually very well uh, correlated to inflation. So I think a lot more uh, companies are innovating around real assets. Uh, and we see uh, you know, that being reflected in the, the way VCs are deployed as well. So, my final question to you then is, what does great look like for Funnel in the next decade? I think I mentioned my vivid descriptions of our future. If we do succeed, being able to really become an integral part of capital markets in any country that employ our technology pieces, therefore really empowering gainful employment by SMEs and allowing private equity as an asset class to really become a mainstay in average investors' portfolio. So that's how we think about success. We're not thinking about this in the short term, not really thinking about this to 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 do like the the, the flipping game essentially, like whereby people people build companies to sell we're thinking about it as if we succeed the new generation of in our, our kids generation especially when they are in school they start their companies together they say hey i can actually use the platform or the exchange that we have built to raise capital and create liquidity events incentivize my employees and the new generation will be therefore hopefully incentivized to start creating new new companies and discoveries again as you already alluded right at the start we're going to do the biosphere through funnel in the future this is something uh, definitely close to heart. It was such a coincidence that we managed to talk about this yeah. uh, as well. I think a lot of my audience out there will be trying to figure out what is this Biosphere project that Bernard and Kelvin is talking about. But if you ever join both of us for beers, you will know. And the, the strange thing is was that I have been thinking about that problem independently for the last 20, 30 years. 
even using most of my fellow scientists as sounding board during the days when I was working in the Human Genome Project. Yep. Okay, Kevin, many thanks for coming on the show and this is really a great conversation and you actually taught me a lot of things about thinking about valuation and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. But in closing, there are two things I have to ask. First, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Hmm, inspired me recently. So I think one of the last books I read was a pretty interesting book called Backable. It actually breaks down what makes a person backable uh, with many, many actionable strategies. So I think that's something that, as, as I mentioned earlier, like a startup is really a journey of self-discovery. And by distilling success or successful raises, help people back people, we can actually all learn to become better entrepreneurs. And um, that's something that I'm personally uh, quite, I'm lacking at. So I need to work on more. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's something interesting. I think I mentioned the other movie recently that I watched was uh, The Billion Dollar Code on Netflix, which talks about a bunch of guys who built the earlier version of, well, it was contested, but the earliest, earlier version of Google Earth that was uh, pretty interesting as well. Mm. And how do my audience find you? How do your audience find me? LinkedIn? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely LinkedIn anytime or through, through, through you, right? Mm. So, or through your website, Funnel. I think it's F-U-N-D-N-E-L.com. Oh, you want to name it for it? <laughs> yes, thank you, yeah. Okay, many thanks for coming on the show. And for my audience out there, you can definitely find us on any podcast platforms out there. If you're going to Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and give us a review so that we can be easily discoverable by everyone else in the world. Calvin, once again, thank you for coming on the show. I'm pretty sure we're going to have another conversation again. Thanks, Bernard. Run it, run it, run it.